Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. It was film director Christopher Nolan, whose films, by the way, have grossed more than $5 billion worldwide and won 11 Academy Awards, who said that every story deserves a great ending. And I'd say that the ending of Mark's gospel that uh, Lydia read earlier to us fits the bill. It has taken us 25 weeks to get here. That's uh, six months and one week. And I hope you've thoroughly enjoyed the journey as much as I have. So what do we have at the end of the gospel? Jesus is not only risen, he appears to the disciples, to all of his disciples. And before he leaves, he commissions them to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And more importantly, they will not undertake this task by themselves. Jesus will work with them. Jesus will work through them. Jesus will empower them and give them the necessary tools to accomplish this mission. The problem is nearly all scholars, and we're not talking about liberal scholars, believe that the 12 verses that Lydia read to us earlier are a later addition rather than the original ending of the Gospel of Mark. That's because the oldest and most reliable manuscripts, along with many others, stop at verse 8. It appears that the early church fathers have no knowledge of the existence of Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20 either. Furthermore, the vocabulary, the grammar style of 16, verses 9 to 20 doesn't sound like Mark, nor does it flow. The additional passage is written as if verses 1 to 8 don't exist. For instance, Mary Magdalene is introduced in verse 9 as if she's a new character, even though she's already been introduced several times in chapter 15, verse 40, 47, and 16, verse 1, albeit without the description that Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. We have no appearance of uh, Jesus in Galilee or to Peter, something that the angel specifically told Mary that, uh, would happen in verse, back in verses 6 to 7. The transition between verses 8 and 9 looks awkward. Verse 8 ends with three women, but in verse 9 we have Jesus appearing only to one of them, Mary Magdalene. It's also clear that the additional verses are a collection of sources, a collection of events sourced from the other three Gospels, such as Jesus' appearance to Mary Magdalene. You can find that in John chapter 16, verses 9 to 11, and 20, verses 14 to 18. And also his appearance to the two downcast disciples walking in the country. We find that in Luke chapter 24. The commissioning of disciples. Uh, we find that in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. And of course, the ascension of Jesus. Uh, we see that, uh, see, see that account in Luke chapter 24, uh, 50 to 53. Even its unique emphasis on signs and wonders that will follow those who believe and preach the gospel, such as driving out demons, speaking in new tongues, protection from snake bites, and healing the sick, sick all allude to the book of Acts. So what's in question here is not whether these events took place, because they did take place, but whether, they were, whether Mark actually wrote them. 
So that is what is in question. So if Mark didn't write them, who wrote them? Scholars believe that these verses were added by scribes sometime in the second century or later to give Mark's gospel a happier and more suitable ending, similar to the other gospels. As the original ending of Mark at verse 8 makes for an abrupt, inconclusive, and dissatisfying conclusion to a story that's supposed to be good news. And you can understand why. Let's look at verses 6 to 8, if that's where it ends. Don't be alarmed, the angel said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. So there's no problems there. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And Christopher Nolan would say, that's a bad ending to a good story. <laughs> so this inevitably raises the question about the original conclusion to Mark's gospel. And there are two possibilities. The first is, Mark did not intend to end his gospel on verse 8. If so, what happened to the original ending? Was he prevented from finishing up his gospel because of illness or death or martyrdom? Perhaps the original ending was accidentally torn off or damaged from lots of wear and tear. The answer is we just don't know. But if Mark had written more, how might his gospel end? It seems Matthew followed Mark's gospel quite closely. And you see this particularly in Mark chapter 16, verses 6 to 8, where he parallels Matthew nearly verbatim in his account in 28, verses 11 to 15. So in the light of this, perhaps Mark's ending could have been similar to Matthew's gospel. The second possibility is Verse 8 was Mark's intended conclusion, and it's a position held by a majority of recent interpreters of Mark. According to them, Mark's, uh, Mark's abrupt ending was intentionally left open-ended. We do have the disciples fleeing and, and fearing, but critically, Mark did include in his en ending an empty tomb and a promise that Jesus awaits for his disciples. What will we do? In other words, the conclusion to the Gospel of Mark must be supplied by each one of us. For some of us, the ending may challenge us to reflect further on the cross and discipleship, what that looks like in our context. For others, the final word fear requires a response of faith. Will we embrace the Lord and His command, or will we give in to our fears? and disobey him. The second possibility is the one that I'm going with, and I want to tease this out a bit more. So why did Mark end his gospel with references to the women, to the disciples, trembling, bewildered, in fear, by telling no one what they had witnessed, in direct disobedience to the angel's command? A secular literary critic has commented that Mark's abrupt ending and jarring ending is either intolerably clumsy or it is incredibly subtle. 
Let me suggest the one subtle thing that Mark may be attempting to say to us by ending the gospel the way he did, and it is this, that biblical faith is not devoid of struggles, such as doubts and fears and failures, but the choice to put our hope and trust firmly in Jesus' trustworthiness and his faithfulness to us despite them. The second verse of the song we will sing in response to the message, yet not I, but Christ in me, says it well. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. We are not forsaken. For by our side, the Savior, he will stay. We labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in our need, his power is displayed. To this we hold, our shepherd will defend us. Through the deepest valley he will lead. From the night, oh, the night has been won, and we shall overcome. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. You see, the Bible is incredibly realistic about life. In a scene from one of the most profound movies I've ever watched, The Princess Bride, Buttercup tells Wesley off, you mock my pain, to which he replies, life is pain, highness. Anyone saying differently is selling something. God is not selling us anything. The gospel is not a magic pill that makes all of our struggles and all of our problems disappear the moment we put our faith in God. The Bible is incredibly realistic in the way it presents life, including those who follow him. Consider how flawed a majority of the heroes are in the Bible, how dysfunctional many of their families were. The Bible doesn't shy away from telling us the horrors and struggles of life. The Bible tells us that we can do everything right and still find life incredibly hard and challenging. That things happen to us for which there are no explanations, even though we can do the right thing, like Job, for instance. That is why the Gospel of Mark, ending on references of the disciples fleeing and trembling in bewilderment and doubt and fearing for their lives, are not out of place even after the resurrection. Because while we have been gloriously saved and redeemed, we're still flawed broken, living in a fallen world. We speak of the early church sometimes as though it was ideal and perfect. Let's, let's go back to the early church. We need to go back. We need to be like the early church. You sure you want to be like the early church? Like Corinth, for example, incredibly messy church. Lots of strife, lots of disunity, lots of infighting, immorality. Paul falling out with Barnabas. As Francis Schaeffer notes insightfully, it is not only cruel and empty-headed to say it is easy to live in the abnormality of this, of this life, it is also a complete contradiction of what the Bible teaches. Each of us is marred by abnormality in many ways, whether it is, it is physical or otherwise. The think it is easy and not be overwhelmed at times simply is not 
what the Bible pictures. The gospel is good news, not because we get to live happily after. The profound difference that the gospel makes in our lives is that we're no longer lost and alone as we face life, but that our risen Lord, the tomb is empty, He is risen. Our risen Lord walks with us, along with our brothers and sisters in Christ, helping us every step of the way, growing our faith in Him, and deepening our intimacy with us. That is the profound difference that the gospel makes in our lives, not because everyone lives happily after, not in this life. We have to wait for a little longer. Remember, I've been saying throughout the series that Mark's audience is most likely Christians being persecuted in Rome. And I reckon that far from being disillusioned and disturbed, reading Mark's ending, they would have found great solace, comfort, and strength in finding out that Jesus' first disciples fled the tomb, bewildered, confused, fearful, and directly disobeyed the angel's instruction to preach the gospel. Think of a time when you discovered that you were not alone in your struggles, that you were really hard on yourself for, that you really loathe yourself for. Do you know what I'm talking about? Struggles you've had. And think of that moment when you realize that there are others who battle the same battles you do, who struggle with the same things that you do. But they have worked through it, and they have become stronger. They're healthier, but they still struggle. Can, can you remember discovering people that you're not alone in your struggle? Did, were you depressed, or were you, were you relieved? Were you feeling downcast, or were you injected with hope? I'd say it's the letter, right? That you're not on your own. That there are others like you. There are others who can empathize with you. There are others who feel what you feel. Who have gone through or are going through what you are going through. So it is not hard to imagine the persecuted Christians in Rome that Mark was writing to would have been trembling fearing for their lives in Rome, right? Feeling very discouraged and confused about their lives. Lord, we're following you, and yet we're not liked. We're not loved. We're not welcomed by people in Rome, largely. What's going on? Sharing the good news with others? It could cost, it could cost us our lives. Better to keep it to yourself. And they would have felt ashamed for doing this. They would have felt ashamed for yielding to fear and keeping their mouth shut. Less if they open their mouths and, and tell their, their neighbors that they're Christians that they might be persecuted. They would have felt quite ashamed by this. And I can imagine their relief reading Mark's ending that Jesus' earliest disciples did the same thing. They fled too. They were bewildered. They were confounded. They were fleeing for their lives. I can imagine that sense of relief. We're not alone in our struggles. The original disciples struggle with the same thing that we are. 
And they were with the Lord three years. But as they hear Mark's gospel being read out, the penny would have dropped as they realized while the original disciples initially struggled, they did eventually overcome their confusion, their doubts, their fear, but through the power and the faithful presence of the Holy Spirit. Because the earliest disciples did spread the good news of their, their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, of which they are recipients. In their unbelief, doubt, and fear, Jesus did not abandon them, but kept his promise to them to be with them until the end of age. You know, this would have given the Christians in Rome enormous and renewed hope and trust in Jesus' love for them, that even when they are faithless, Jesus will remain faithful to them, that he will keep his promises to them no matter what happens, that he will be with them in the highs and lows in their success and their failures to the end of the age, walking with them and empowering them to overcome obstacles as they come. Brothers and sisters, biblical faith is not the absence of doubts and fears. We can and will struggle in life with, with struggle in life and struggle with God, but this doesn't mean that we have strayed. This doesn't mean that God will abandon us. Look at verse 7, chapter 16. The angel says, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Garland writes, this special nod to Peter hints at his full restoration despite his extraordinary breach of faith. Well, you know that Jesus denied the Lord three times. Jesus does not give up on his disciples, no matter how great their failure or how many their faults. He is going ahead of you doesn't just mean that Jesus would go on ahead of them, but as their good shepherd, he would regather them into the fold as his flock. Remember, they were all scattered, fleeing for their lives. And so when Jesus says, I'm going ahead of you, he's saying, I'm going to gather you back as my sheep, as my property, as my beloved disciples, despite all of you fleeing for your lives, despite all of you doing exactly what Peter did. See, it wasn't just Peter who denied the Lord. All his disciples did because they weren't there for Jesus, remember? And yet he says to them, I'm going ahead of you and I'll be waiting for you. Isn't that a wonderful picture? I will be there waiting for you, ahead of you. What reassurance from Jesus. Mark is saying to us, making Jesus Lord doesn't mean that following him will be easy. It is okay to have doubts. It is okay even to flee from God in despair and in hopelessness. To fear, to struggle with, with God in the face of inexplicable pain and suffering and injustice. Biblical faith is not the absence of them, but a choice to trust in Jesus' trustworthiness and faithfulness despite them. Biblical faith is not about having every single existential, moral, intellectual questions resolved. 
It is about placing our trust in our risen Lord who's no longer in the tomb, even when these questions remain unresolved. So I believe it's a masterstroke on the part of Mark that he ends his gospel on a note of confusion, panic, and fear. As Garland astutely explains, we want the gospel to conclude on a note of victory and good cheer. But that was not Mark's situation. The ache of death is not so easily assuaged. Mark writes for those who never will experience Jesus' physical presence. He writes for those who may feel like the disciples, struggling against the wind in a tiny skiff during the dark hours of the night, feeling acute anguish because Jesus is not physically there to be touched, to give a word of assurance. In a setting of withering persecution, things can look ambiguous. The risen Jesus does not materialize bodily in our midst as much as we long for that and wish for that to happen. Angels do not descend to give reassuring reports. We have to believe in Jesus' resurrection based on hearsay evidence. The same report that the women heard, he has risen. Even after God's revelation has taken place in Jesus' resurrection mystery, fear and failure remain. Now, Mark is not giving a nod to unfaithfulness. He's not telling us, oh, don't worry about your problems. We are to work on it. We are to move forward. We can't stay stagnant. But we do so on the understanding that whether we make progress or not, Jesus will be there for us. And the reason why we move forward is not to ensure that Jesus will be there. But Jesus is already there, whether we make progress or not. Do we understand that? Biblical faith is not putting trust in ourselves to be able to fix our problems, to be able to make ourselves more presentable to Jesus. Biblical faith is putting our trust in Jesus' trustworthiness, that he is who he says he is. Biblical faith is putting our trust in his faithfulness, that even when we are faithless, he is faithful to us. So for your application this week, and I've written about it in the uh, news bulletin, take some time. Make some time meditating on Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, and prayerfully respond to Jesus' words to you. In the middle of his charge to us to make disciples, as we simultaneously continue learning about what it means to be his disciples in the different stages of life, in the different responsibilities of life, in the different experiences of life, he books, he books, he bookends it with two promises. The first is we make disciples. We do life. We live life with the full backing of his authority. That's the first promise. Don't ever forget, Jesus says to us, whatever it is that you go through, don't lose sight of who I am. I am the Prince of Glory. I am the Prince of Peace. I have overcome death and sin. I live in you. You have the full backing of my authority as you go through life. 
And the second promise is he promises never to leave us nor forsake us, but, but will be with us always. Stand on these two promises. Hold on on these two promises as you live life for the glory of God. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.